This morning, though, I want to talk to us more generally about work, a Christian uh, philosophy of work. This is the first of two sessions on work. Your schedule may have said that uh, it was going to be Russ now, but we just switched around. He's going to do the second session um, on work. So that's what we're thinking about this morning, a Christian philosophy of work. Let's see if I can get it to move on to my first slide. Have I turned it on? Yes. It's not working for me, Ryan, at the moment. Can you move that on for me? Okay, so human beings, according to Scripture, we touched on this yesterday, were made to worship and serve, to tend and to keep God's good Creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, so 1, 28, 2, 15. This is the purpose for which we were made according to Scripture. And so overall, in general, we can say that to work is an integral part of what it means to be human. Work isn't something that you, you know, opt in or out of, a sort of a, a choice. It's an integral part of what it means to be human. It's not optional. It's a creational norm. And it's established by God himself. How is work in uh, scripture established by God himself? Kristen. Right. So God actually establishes the pattern of work. God is the first worker. He works for six days. He rests on the seventh day, according to scripture. That's repeated for us in the book of Exodus, Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor, because in six days God created the world. So work itself is not a curse. You may think that when you're 15 or 16. <laughs> but work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. And to avoid work is actually dehumanizing. To be denied work or to avoid work is dehumanizing. It, uh, that is, it, it denigrates our humanity. That's why unemployment is always a political issue. And unemployment is a, is a problem. Because not to be employed is uh, a problem in the human condition. It's a problem for the human condition when you're made to work. The Apostle Paul actually regards work as so basic to a person's life that he actually says, if a man does not work, he shouldn't eat. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. When was the last time you heard a sermon on that? <laughs> right? We hear so much today about the importance of social assistance and handouts and welfare and everything else and people saying they earned this and they deserve that and minimum wages and universal income and all this kind of talk. Paul says if somebody doesn't work and they're able to work, so obviously if, you, if somebody is disabled and needs support, that's a different situation. Those who are able to work and don't work because they don't want to work, Paul says they shouldn't eat. Now because the curse fell on human beings and thereby on all creation due to sin. Work does participate in the frustration and the sense of futility which 
to which creation has been subjected. So we're told in scripture that all of creation has been subject to futility, and that includes our work. So there is a sense of frustration now with our work. Work now comes with the sweat of the brow. What that really means is, is that creation, because of the curse, because of sin, resists our work. That's why work is hard. That's why we talk about work being uh, laborious, labor laborious, is that creation due to the curse resists our work. So when you're looking after a property like this, for example, you look around here, there's a lot of work. And weeds grow. You know, sooner have you cleared one bed from weeds than a whole bunch of other weeds are growing in a different bed. And when you've cleared that one, you go back to the one you've already done, and the weeds are back. It's when you're doing um, academic labor, you're trying to write an essay, and you have to go back over it, and oh, you realize you've made all kinds of mistakes, and you've made grammatical errors, and you've, you've not thought about that point enough, and you have to go back over it and back over it again, and it's a labor, it's work, it's hard work. So the sense of frustration, the sense of futility came with the curse, and work participates in that. But the reconciling work of Christ has actually given us a ministry of reconciliation so that we might work the works of God, says in John 6, 28. So just by way of introduction, work is a blessing. Work is part of what it means to be human, to be denied work, or to avoid work ultimately is dehumanizing. Uh, We have a, a culture now that's become fixated on actually retirement, early retirement, people taking retirement as quickly and as early as possible to enjoy leisure. And we often conceive of the kingdom of heaven as sort of some kind of eternal retirement, some sort of eternal leisure. Um, But that's actually not the way the Bible speaks about it. It talks about governing and ruling nations and serving God, but it doesn't talk about lying in a chair, being fanned by angels, eating grapes and drinking pina coladas. There will be the sense of frustration and futility from our work will be gone for sure. But work is a blessing. So let's think now about some humanistic secular views of work before we talk in more detail about the scriptural perspective on work. What are some of the views of work that we see in our culture today? And It's important to look at these because whether we realize it or not, they will have influenced the way we think about work. And I want you, as we look at these, to notice the idols, to notice the idols uh, that are present in these conceptions of work. The first one is that work is a necessary evil. That's the way a lot of people think about work. Work is a necessary evil. It'd be better if we didn't have to work. If life were a kind of permanent uh, leisure, permanent retirement. But it's a necessary evil. We've got to get it done. We need to be pragmatic. And if we're going to enjoy leisure, we have to do some work. So the more quickly I can get it done, the, the, uh, the less trouble it is for me, Um, And the the maximum amount I can make in the shortest amount of time will maximize my leisure. So what's the idol here? Anybody? What might be the idol? Yeah, leisure. 
The idea is that, that uh, the goal of life is leisure. Not rest, we'll come to that later, but, but leisure. And that's the objective. And so work is just a necessary evil. The second one, well, this is a little bit more complex. Man can recreate himself through work and usher in a workless utopia. Anybody know whose idea this was? Well, it was at least attributed to him in modern, in modern times. Anyone want to take a stab at that? A wild stab in the dark, which is what one of you will be getting if you don't get this. Karl Marx, who said Marx? Karl Marx. His view was that work is uh, something which we can utilize as a means to recreating ourselves and the world to the point where we can create a workless utopia. The workers of the world must unite. You come across that expression? Workers of the world unite and throw off the existing order. What was the existing order for Karl Marx? It was wage labor. That was kind of oppressive. We have to remake the world through our work. We can't have this wage labor and surplus value that's being scooped off by all of the nasty capitalists out there exploiting the workers. We need to recreate society so that everybody owns everything, which basically means the state owns it all. Everybody owns everything. And when everybody owns everything, the world can be turned into a workless utopia where you'll be reading books in the morning and uh, poetry and fishing and hunting in the afternoon and fornicating in the evening. And that's what Marx thought the world could look like. Where the fishing rods would come from and the guns for hunting and the books, who knows, but that... But that was his idea, that you could create this workless world. So the workers here are idolized. Not work, but the workers. Right? They are the creators of a new paradise. And that idea, it's morphed a little bit, but that idea is very much still with us. You want to know the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that? We maybe touch on that in Q&A this anarchic thing that's going to destroy all the property and demand this and defund the police and get rid of courts. We're going to create a new paradise without work. Chop! Nobody needs to work there. Okay, next. Work success is the key to success in all of life. And the idea here is that if you can just succeed in your job, then you will succeed in Everything. The key to... Yes? Say again? Yeah, you've jumped ahead a little bit, but that's good. Here we've got... Yeah, work itself is being idolized. Well done, Evan. It's Evan, isn't it? Yeah. Work itself is being idolized. So the, the notion here is that if you can just be successful in your career, your life is a success. Everything in your life will be... And that, of course, is advertised to you. It's marketed to you. It's sold to you all of the time. Actually, you find some very successful people in work whose finances are an utter disaster, whose families are an utter disaster, their relationships are a complete disaster. So here, actually, the good gift of work is actually made into an idol. You know, the image of the, of the, of the, the, the person who... Uh, well, we talk about workaholics. 
They cannot see beyond their work. The next idol is that a work brings wealth and its central purpose is money. Now, of course, all of the, the, um, uh, these idols um, contain a small element of truth in them, right? but they're always pushed to, to an extreme. They get exaggerated to an extreme and then become an error. So work is one, of, is one of the keys to success in life, for sure. Work does bring wealth. And one of the things work brings you is money. It's a partial truth. But actually, from a scriptural perspective, God, well, work serves God's purposes. It serves the well-being of others. It allows us to provide for our families. It brings reward and fulfillment. It occupies our minds, gives us an emotional and psychological health. It does much more than generate money. So what's being idolized here? Money itself, yeah. So the, 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 the end result is just seen purely as this uh, liquid asset, money. Okay, the next one. The goal of work is self-fulfillment. So you can actually see, as, as you look at these, that um, if, you could, if you could imagine work as kind of like a, a, a jewel, there's many sides to the jewel. And all of these things are aspects of what happens when we work in terms of God's will and purpose. But... They take one side of work and make it everything. Identify that thing itself with work. And, well, what, what's the idol here? Evan? The self. the self, right. The self is the idol here. Self-fulfillment. Now, of course, work can be fulfilling. It can be rewarding. It should be. It is. But the central goal of work is not self-centered. It's not self-centered. It's God-centered in the Christian view. We serve Christ as servants of the king in his kingdom, and that brings the fulfillment and the meaning we're looking for because we serve God and his purposes. If you aim at self-fulfillment, you never get it. And Jesus was clear about this. He who wants to save his life, that is live for himself, will lose it. He who gives up his life for my sake will find it. So those are some of the secular humanistic views of work that we encounter all around us that influence us because they influence, through, influence us through media and books and film and our peers and everything else. Before we talk specifically about scriptural views of work, let's think about some of the quasi-Christian perspectives on work. Now, what do I mean by a quasi-Christian uh, perspective? I mean a, a perspective on work that tries to blend the Christian principle, tries to synthesize the Christian principle with a faulty understanding of the world. So within the broadly Christian tradition, there's been a variety of views on work, and they've tended to try and accommodate themselves to the cultural ideas of their time. I'm just going to pick up on a couple of the dominant ones. First of all, there's been a dominant pietistic view of creation. Just go back one slide a second, Ryan. Um, 
which views the world of work as a secondary area of life that's inferior to the cultivation of your personal piety. Do you understand what I mean? That's what I mean by pietism. So the focus of your life as a Christian should be cultivating your personal piety, your personal relationship with God, your prayers, your devotions, and so on, of course, which is very important. But then it gets exaggerated, and it says, that's the purpose. This whole area of work is inferior. It's lesser. It's not so important. It's a secondary area of life at best. And so that gives us some dominant themes that come up, and you often hear Christians quote these kinds of verses. So you can move us on, right? You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. Well, that, of course, is true. Right? Jesus did say that. But when Jesus said that, is he saying that work is not important? No, he's not. What he's saying is that we mustn't make what an idol in our lives. It's not a trick question. Money. You cannot have your ultimate goal, the service of God, and the service of wealth. Serving God very often brings the byproduct of wealth. In fact, the scripture is full of that. You look at some of God's choicest servants, Abraham, Job. They were people of incredible wealth. People of great faith, but people of incredible wealth. But the focus of their lives that was not money, was not wealth. And Jesus addresses it because he was well aware, because it's always been the case, that this is one of the favorite idols in any era. But this, by this, Jesus is not saying, you can't serve me and be faithful and dedicated to a vocation and a career, that it's somehow secondary. Our work must serve God. Work Money is not an end in itself, but the service of God is our end. Okay, then we've got focus on what's eternal, brother, sister. You're very carnal. Focus on the eternal, 2 Corinthians 4.18. We won't do an exegesis of that text right now because of time. And uh, we'll, we'll pick this up again in a moment, but the false implication that's drawn from this about the kingdom of God is that because creation isn't eternal, we touched on this last night, to focus on your work is not a good thing. Now, the world in its present form is passing away, but actually scripture indicates that everything we do in life now and in creation now matters and has eternal consequences. Scripture clearly teaches that some people, it says, at the judgment, their works will be burned up. Right? That is because they are like wood, hay, stubble, straw. That the, the product of their lives is like pff, straw. Was not done to serve God. And they will suffer loss. Okay, well that clearly indicates that for others, their work isn't wood, hay, stubble, straw, pff, that's worthless. And the scripture speaks actually of the, um, the riches and the, and the wealth and the glory of the nations being brought to the king of kings. So 
focusing on what is, on what is eternal is a focus on the kingdom of God, not focusing on Alice in Wonderland thinking where we think, well, nothing here really matters that much. So let's just focus on what's eternal. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Everything here matters in its detail to God. Another Christian, pseudo-Christian perspective, work is to be endured as part of the fall. So while, you know, we do live in this fallen creation and so we do need to, you know, work hard and bend our backs and so on. We have to endure it. Um, but one day we're going to be liberated from work and we'll be playing harps and floating on clouds and won't have to do any work anymore. Well, again, not a scriptural view of work. Work was not, as I said, part of the curse. Part of being human is to work. And we don't lose our humanity in the resurrection. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus <clears throat> was pretty busy in his resurrected body. And one of the things he did is he didn't think it was beneath him to cook breakfast for his disciples after the resurrection. And he ate breakfast with me, ate fish on the shore. I think it was the Sea of Galilee. And you remember that in, the, in the, his resurrected body, his glorified body, they could touch his hands and his feet, the holes, the scars. He says, it's me. Now, he's the firstborn from the dead, so we're going to follow him. Work was not part of the curse. The frustration that comes with it is part of the curse. So it's not something that we endure so that we can finally get to heaven and be done with it. So that's one of the traditions, the pietistic view of work. Another tradition dominant in the church stems from the Middle Ages, what theologians have called scholasticism, invokes a very deep divide between the secular and the sacred. And it, and it calls forth this series of dualisms in our thinking, separations in our thinking, or hierarchies that affect our perception of work. So you can pull up the next one, uh, Ryan. Thank you. So the first one is the eternal temporal hierarchy, and we've sort of touched on that a little bit already, is that what's eternal really matters, but what's temporary doesn't really matter. There's a hierarchy there. So if there's something to do with what you think is to do with your eternal life, that's important. If it's to do with your temporal life, it really isn't. So if you're 300 pounds and uh, you know, eating yourself to death, that doesn't really matter too much. The body's not important. Okay, that's an extreme example, but here's, you can see how these hierarchies are linked, right? Then there's the body-soul hierarchy. I'm not going to talk in any detail about the false body-soul dualism that comes to us from the Greeks that kind of teaches there are two substances in the universe. There's material substance and there's soul substance. That's not a teaching of the Bible. When the Bible talks about soul or spirit, it's talking about the heart, the inner man, the inner person. And there is an inextricable, inextricable even, even um, the way uh, Doug expressed it last night, 
he's not here for me to correct him publicly. He's not quite correct when he talked about a, uh, a uh, body-soul hybrid. That's not the way the, the Bible really speaks about the human person. Uh, Jesus wasn't raised as a spirit, as a disembodied soul. To be human is to be embodied. So there is, we are, there, it is all bound together. Right? We are, we are these, these elements, they're bound together. The inner man and the outer man is what the Bible talks about. So the soul or the spirit is talking about the heart, the inner person. To be human is to be embodied. But we tend to think of anything to do with the soul, this other realm, that's really important, but the body, that's not so important. Then the other hierarchy, therefore, clergy laity. The life and work of the church and its ministers, that's really important. But ordinary people, their task is to you know, endure work and give money to the church. What's the purpose of your work? So that you can give it to the church so that they can do the work of the kingdom of God. That's not what the Bible says about our work. I mean, and that also devalues the work of other people. Devalues manual labor, devalues people in business. So what it says to them is, you've heard the expression, I'm going into full-time ministry, sister. As though if you're not a pastor or a priest or a nun or a monk, you're not in full-time ministry. So it's all this same heritage, right? That if you work in the church, it's truly holy. Now look, I'm a pastor. I'm kind of a hybrid now, but... Um, I've, I served as a pastor in London for three years, in England, and, and for uh, 12 years, I was the, uh, 10 years, I was the senior pastor of Westminster Chapel. I'm still one of the pastors there. So I'm not running down the importance of the pastoral calling. It's an important calling. But it's not more important than the calling of the farmer or the calling of the business person, as though that's the kingdom of God there and nothing else is. And all that the business person has to do is work out there and endure it so that they can donate money to the church. Okay? Church and state, faith and... I've run these together just so that I don't annoy Susie and take too long. Church and state, faith and science, Christianity and culture. These are all the other dualisms, the separations that this calls out, calls forth, right? So we have some Christian traditions, some of the Mennonites, for example, the Anabaptists would say no Christian should work in the state. That's not holy. It's not, you can't do that. You can't serve in the military. You notice if you look, read scripture, not once did Jesus or John the Baptist in all of their encounters with centurions ever tell a Roman soldier to leave the army, repent and leave the army. That's worth thinking about. Faith and science. We say, well, okay, to be a theologian, to be teaching the faith, but to be in biology or to be like a Michael Faraday, that's not really that important. That's not as important as doing theology. And then this separation between Christianity and culture. Christianity overall stands, for, stands in contrast there to human culture as a faith concerned with the priority of another world and a future time and culture is now, and so when culture starts going down, well, Christians just say, well, we'll flee to, don't worry, we're fleeing to another world. 
This culture doesn't really matter that much. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Now, all of those perceptions have influenced the way Christians view work. It degrades the importance of creation and Christ's redemptive work in creation. It depreciates the importance, the goodness, and centrality of work. Now, this view can lead to the tent maker model that is quite common as well amongst Christians as they talk and think about work. What, is the tent, what do I mean by the tent maker model? It looks something like this. Your primary task as a Christian is evangelism. Forget everything else. Everything else is secondary. Your marriage, your kids, your work, everything else. That's okay. That's baggage along the way. It's better if even if you don't have those. Some traditions in the church said it's better if you're not married and you don't have kids, you don't have any kind of encumbrance, and you're in full-time evangelism. That's the primary task. Grab some brands from the burning. Now, again, what you're going to see here is they take a truth and exaggerate that truth to such a point that it becomes an error. My first, uh, gosh, 10 years in uh, service to the Lord was in evangelism and apologetics, traveling doing it. Again, so I'm not running down the importance of evangelism. I passionately believe in evangelism. It's one of our tasks, but the Great Commission is not do personal evangelism. The Great Commission is all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, Jesus said. All authority. Therefore, go and disciple all of the nations and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Disciple nations in terms of the kingdom of God. That's the Great Commission. So evangelism is one of our tasks, but it's not the, the primary task of the Christian life. The primary task of the Christian is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some people say, well, Paul used tent making to advance the gospel. Again, there's a partial half-truth there. Paul did make tents, but did Paul make tents? So he could say, right, now what I'm going to do so that I can do really effective personal evangelism, I'm going to make tents, and then I can witness to the other tent makers. As though that's all your work, that's all you should be thinking about work. No, actually what the Bible says is that Paul, so that he would not be a financial burden in the work of his apostleship on other Christians, made tents as his business. Now, did Paul likely encounter other tent makers whom he was trading with and was able to share the gospel with them? Of course, I'm sure that happened. But your calling in work and vocation is not simply so that you can be alongside non-believers so that you can do the real work and tell them about Jesus while the finances of your business or the goes to hell in a handbasket and you're awful at your job, but you're a brilliant witness. Are you following this? Yeah how this could, this could become a skewed priority. Then we're told the workplace is a mission field. Well, that's true. Well, the workplace is uh, one of our mission fields. It's another half truth. Our vocation is that, we, that by which we serve and glorify God, doing everything, though, with excellence. So when we do our work and we're called into a vocation, 
We should be thinking about how can I do this to the best of my ability with excellence so that I bring glory to God. That's the first mission. So my first mission in a job would be to make sure that I'm accomplishing the task that the business is trying to accomplish. If I work for Russ, for example, and his software company, software training, and I was just brilliant that share, you know, half the office was coming to know Jesus, but I was terrible at the job, and I was just costing the company money. Now, he might be really gracious to me and think, well, you know what, I guess there's a bit of kingdom value here, but what if he wasn't a believer? How long do you think I'd last in that job? And so the, the work is to, do, to glorify Christ with the excellence of our work and then take every opportunity to, to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Maybe they ask you why you're so dedicated, faithful, competent, excellent at what you're doing. Part of this will be then these opportunities to share the good news. And then every Christian's primary calling is to be an evangelist. It's kind of linked to the first one, uh, you know, evangelism is our primary task. I love evangelists. My first mentor was an evangelist. I still see myself in many respects as an evangelist. But you know, a lot of Christians are hopeless evangelists. I wouldn't want to let them loose on my friends and neighbors, right? Talk about seeker hostile witnessing and sharing. They've got no idea how to answer the questions about the faith. They're insensitive. They can be rude. I feel like they're turning everything upside, the, upside down and the wrong way up, thinking, oh, Lord, thank you that you're gracious and save this person in spite of that evangelism. Right? Because that's sometimes how, how it looks like. So we're all called to bear witness, but we're not all called to be evangelists. That's a gift that's given to the church. And thank goodness God calls some specific people and gifts them in a peculiar way to be evangelists. We're all called to bear witness. We're all called to be witnesses, but we're not all evangelists and apologists. So in contrast to this, Scripture is clear that all of creation belongs to God and is oriented towards him and is related back to him. So let's take a look at that scriptural perspective as we wrap this up in the last few minutes. So we noted that, to begin with, that the basis of all human work is that God himself is a worker. And we are created in the image of God. We reflect God and his will and purpose. So if God is a worker, Scripture says we're workers. We're creators. Now, we don't create out of nothing. We create with what God has already made. So we're working with the raw materials that God has provided. But in that, we are co-creators. God did not provide the world to our first parents, shrink-wrapped and microwavable. He set them in a garden to work it, to keep it, to develop it, to bring out the potentiality of the earth. And you see very quickly animal husbandry in the book of Genesis developing and uh, farming and then metallurgy, working with metals and making of musical instruments. So and that's human culture that's taking creation and turning it into a God-glorifying culture. So the first principle is that God is a worker. Psalm 111. Next slide, Ryan, if you would. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. 
I love that last bit, studied by all who delight in them. There's, there's the work of the academic, the intellectual there, right? Christian philosophy, to study the works of the Lord because we delight in them. And they're great works because God's a worker. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he'd done. My father is still working, Jesus said, and I am working also. My father is working, I am working also. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So God is at work. Christ is at work. And human beings are co-workers with God. Next slide, Brian. Thank you. Next one. God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, fill the earth, and subdue it. So the having dominion and the subduing of the earth is our work. It's the ruling, it's the tending, it's the keeping. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let's fast forward into the New Testament. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are God's co-workers. Well, it's not rocket science, is it? This is just this is just coming straight out of scripture. This is the scriptural perspective on work. God is a worker. We are working. We are God's co-workers. Co-workers in what? In the work of the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God. Cultivating culture by building human civilization, caring for creation, bringing out its potentiality in terms of God's laws and norms. You are inescapably a culture maker in your work. You can't opt out of it. You can't say I'm not part of it. Your attempt to opt out is a form of approach to culture. So everything that you're doing will either be done in obedience or disobedience, faithfulness or apostasy to God. Next, scriptures tells us that work is a good gift. It's God's good gift. Think about the way King Solomon spoke of this gift of God. I love the work of Solomon. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, it's just wonderful stuff. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. So if anybody ever tells you that Christians don't eat and drink and celebrate and rejoice in their work and thank God for it all, it's not scriptural. God has also given riches and wealth certain amount of wealth to every man, and he has allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. That's pretty different from the sort of sour grapes Christian approach. You, you know, you mustn't, uh, don't be proud of that, brother. That's pride. Give up all of your wealth. Surrender it. I remember songs when I was growing up of Christian musicians who took this kind of a, uh, approach, and I'll never forget the one by Jim Gilbert. Many of his songs were good, um, but uh, he sings about two men. He says, uh, There's a, a wealthy man in his speedboat enjoying the breeze, yellow man on his reed boat 
out on unfriendly seas? Should it be that one day they will meet face to face when they're standing before you? Will one be disgraced, wasted blessing? Now, of course, it's true that if we live unto ourselves to have the speedboat and the yacht and the golf club membership, and we don't give to the Lord out of our substance, and we don't care about others, yeah, we're heading for judgment. But the notion that it's wrong to enjoy the fruit of your labor and have a boat and enjoy it on the lake and enjoy creation and God's good gifts, that's a lie. That's a lie. And it fills Christians often with a whole load of guilt that they're not doing this and they're not doing that and they're enjoying this and they're enjoying that and, well, so-and-so doesn't have that over there. Well, we are to care for our brothers and sisters. That's important. Scripture makes that very, very clear. We're to give to the Lord so that we can provide for those in need. That does not mean that wealth is evil, that rejoicing in our labor is wrong, that enjoying the gifts of God is wrong. Where did I get to in this quotation? Because I'm exegeting it now. This is a gift of God, for he does... For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Especially when you're young, you don't consider the days of your life so much. As you get older, you start to think, eh, how many have I got left? This is, you see, the writer of Ecclesiastes describes the human condition beautifully, brilliantly. It recognizes our creaturehood, and it recognizes the goodness of God's gifts. Now, although sin, next slide, Brian, made all forms of work hard and frustrating, resisting us, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, this is what it says, the ground is cursed because of you, the ground, you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. I think this passage is, is a noted passage. It's been quoted many times in literature and in, in film. I think my favorite quotation in film would have to be Denzel Washington in the book of Eli, who quotes this passage. Don't tell your parents I told you that. It's, I think it's an R. Um, the ground is cursed for our sake. So this describes the nature of work, that frustration. Although work is hard and it's frustrating, nonetheless, next slide, Ryan, it's still dignifying. So even though it's difficult and we have to labor and we have to sweat, it is nonetheless dignifying. And that's actually described for us beautifully in our memory verse, Psalm 8. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God. It's Elohim actually there in the Hebrew. And crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. 
So this is the lordship. This is the dignifying nature of human work, that we are dignified by our work. We're not, despite the frustration and labor, it's not undignifying, it's dignifying to work. You know how one of the techniques for demoralizing prisoners in, in um, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, Russia today, of course, but one of, the, one of the ways that people were punished in labor camps is to do meaningless work. They'd put one pile of rocks over one side of the camp, and they'd make the prisoners carry those rocks over to the other side of the camp, put them in a pile, and the next day carry them back. Meaningless, dehumanizing labor. But that's not what work is meant to be under God. It's dignifying. And Jesus actually modeled this because, actually, I think Doug mentioned this yesterday. Most of Jesus' career was as a carpenter. 29, 30 years of his life was growing up, of course, with his parents, and then being apprenticed in his father's trade, probably by 12, 13 years of age. Most of his career was as a carpenter or stonemason. He had three years of public ministry in which he, ident he identified himself as the anointed Messiah, son of man, son of God. So Christ dignified work. And we are commanded to work. Because of sin, we actually have a tendency to idleness. Right? So the Christian view of work is we're commanded to do it. We tend to avoid work. We want to cut corners, do the minimal. Yeah, now, I've got three children, 18, 16, 13. And, yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, on Saturday mornings when it's time to get the jobs done, I know that I'm going to have to follow them around somewhat to make sure it's done properly. Because our tendency is to do the minimal, to cut corners, to get it done as quick as possible, to avoid work. And I mentioned yesterday that the Greeks idealized intellectual contemplation, and the lowest people did the manual work. I talked about even the, the idea of the gentleman was somebody who didn't have to work. But Paul says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example so that you would imitate us. In fact, we were, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that working, quietly working, they may eat their own food. Now there's the answer to all of the anarchists and rioters and protesters today. Right there in the Bible. That's the scriptural view. We are commanded to work. And one of the reasons we're commanded to work is we have a duty. Next slide, Ryan. Especially, as, especially dads here. If anyone does not provide for his own, 
You consider this for a minute. If anyone does not, this is the teaching of the Apostle Paul, if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When was the last time you heard a sermon on that? So, dad, I'm speaking to dad, uh, future dads especially here. You have a duty and a responsibility to provide. Now, I know that's a burden. But that's an obligation that God places on us. And if we don't provide for our own household, men who abscond and abandon their children don't work, and we call it in, the, in England now, break down Britain, there are third and fourth generation families who have never worked. Their great-grandfather didn't work, their grandfather didn't work, their father didn't work, and they're not working. They're all claiming on social security. Three generations of them. Paul says for the Christian, if you don't provide for your own house, you have denied the faith. Think about that. This idea that you can separate faith and work, body and soul. Oh, yeah, but I'm very pious. I'm a person of prayer. How's that going to put bread on the table for your children? You've denied the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. Because not to work, to glorify God and provide, is to be an unbeliever. It's to act and live like an unbeliever. The thief, Paul says, must no longer steal. He must do honest work with his own hands. You know, some of the, the BLM crowd, most of whom are white, are basically saying that these virtues are just white, oppressive culture. Right? That, that this is just whiteness. These aren't biblical principles. No, that's a lie. Paul says, instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. How can you give or share if you don't work? How can you give anything to anybody else? You see, what these people are saying in our culture, these anarchists today, is we want all of you other people who work to give what you have so that we don't have to do anything. That's what they're saying. All the provident and the productive, you people must give it all to us so that we don't have to do anything. If you want something to share with somebody else, if you actually want to be generous, what have those people got to share with anybody? Nothing. All they can do is take. If you want to give, you have to be productive. Finally, work as service, almost finally. Work is service to God. We're oriented to God. We participate in this cultural aspect of created reality. And we serve in our family, in society, in all creation. That's what it is. Paul says, Colossians 3, 23, Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Notice he is the Lord Christ. He is the king. That's who you're serving. 
You will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord if you do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord. That's the attitude we take towards work. We're doing it for the Lord. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, in other words, in the most mundane things in your life, or whatever you do, we do it all to the glory of God. Engagement then with work. And I'm going to zip through these really quickly. What does it mean to be a Christian to engage with work? Well, Ed Silvoso, in his book, says that these are the basic principles. To be a faithful Christian, and Russ will pick up on some of these in his session, but to be a faithful Christian in the workplace, that's the first thing. Not all work is legitimate. Right? You heard about the sex trade. That's not a legitimate trade. So we have to be faithful Christians as we think and engage in work. Secondly, we have to be a faithful Christian who applies scriptural principles in our work. And that will mean we're not violating our conscience. We work with integrity. We think through the implications of what God's word means for our work. Thirdly, it means to serve in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do the work that God's called us to without empowerment. And that means prayer. And prayer is a work. Prayer is a labor. It's a kind of work. If we're going to be effective, we need prayer in our lives so that we can work and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, to be a Christian committed to the transformation of the workplace. That means we're not just satisfied with the status quo. We want to see the workplace and our work transformed in terms of the purposes of the kingdom of God, directed towards God's will and purpose. And finally, a work-rest balance. You often hear people say uh, that we need a work-life balance. You know, how's your work-life balance? <laughs> What's wrong with that? Right. You see how the dualism is, is right there in that expression. You've got your work-life balance wrong, brother. No, the Bible doesn't say anything about a work-life balance as though either work is not really part of what makes life meaningful. It's a chore you endure so that you can have leisure or it's a lesser part of our experience of life. No, we need a work-rest balance. God gives a Sabbath rest for us for rejoicing. God models it with creation and he gives us rest and rejoicing. What the Sabbath means what it reminds us of is that God is on the throne. Jesus Christ is in control. It means that I, he governs and rules all things so I can rejoice and rest in the Lord and trust him in everything. I'm free to rest because God reigns. Some people feel no sense of rest. They can never find rest. So scripture says there's no rest for the wicked because they don't really believe that God is in control. And I can rest and trust the Lord because I know that God is in control of all things. And if I serve him, I can leave things to God. I can afford to rest. I can afford Sabbath rest. I can afford uh, a holiday of rest and rejoicing. You know, holidays, holy days. That's where the term holiday comes from. They were holy days in the Christian calendar for rest and rejoicing. If we want to be truly blessed and productive in work, we have to rest. Again, in the communist world, in the Soviet Union, and with the French Revolution, they tried to redesign the work week 
So that get rid of God's Sabbath. They thought even the way we work is a reminder of God. So let's get rid of that and make people work seven days a week. Productivity collapsed. And when in France and increasingly people demand, well, we only want to work three days a week or four days a week now. It actually produces decline and decay. But God mandates rest in terms of his creational norms. Rest for the land. Rest for animals. Rest for us as his vice regents in the earth. And failure to observe that is actually self-destructive. So in our personal life and our relationship to God, in our families and marriages, in our vocation, in our church and community, in society and culture, we need a work, rest, balance in all of life because God's given us the blessing of work and rest in each of these areas. Let me conclude with this quote from Dorothy Sayers, who I think sums up Christian view beautifully. She says, What is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. We're co-workers with God. We're God's image bearers. And this brings us into the most important struggle in all of life. That is the struggle for the direction of culture and civilization. Our work brings us into the heart of that struggle, whether we will serve the living God or idols.